Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here with my friend and colleague today on TRSI. Michael, how have you been since last week? I've been very well, Gary, and how are you? Oh, I'm perfect. I'm looking forward to never having to talk about climate change or anything related to it ever again, and I'm sure the listeners are also delighted. Well, having talked about it all of once, I think maybe we've done our duty and we can move on. One time more than I ever wanted to. <laughs> so we are back uh, again this week and hopefully we will continue to be so. We have, uh, we'll go through what's on the show coming up in a second. But just before we start that, I wanted to mention that in September on the 16th, it's a Saturday, it's the Saturday before the doll comes back. Uh, Gripped and Free Speech Ireland have come together to host an event in the RDS. We have a number of speakers coming over. Uh, Michael Schellenberger, who's done a lot of work on both free speech and uh, environmental issues. He was involved in the the Twitter file uh, thing with Elon Musk. We've got Helen Joyce, who was um, an editor with The Economist and has done a lot of stuff on the trans issue. We've got John McGurk, we've got Ben Scallon, we've got Kevin Sharkey, we've got Niall Boylan, and there are other speakers uh, yet to be announced you can get tickets online uh, for it. I will put a link below. It should be a great day out. And as I said, it's happening just before the doll gets back. So if we're lucky, the news cycle for it will roll right into the start of the doll and they'll have to deal with something for it. And um, yeah, it should be a, a great day. I think it starts at uh, half 12 or 1 and it'll run until 5 or 6. It's in the RDS uh, so hopefully we'll get a good crowd for it. I think tickets are selling very, very quickly. I know several hundred have been sold. Uh, it launched, I think, two days ago. Um, actually, maybe three at this point. But uh, yeah, tickets are going pretty fast, so we'll include a link. And if you are a GRIP subscriber, you should have got an email with a code giving you a five-year discount. And if you are a silver or gold subscriber, you should have got an email saying, get back to us and we'll give you a free ticket. Uh, in an ideal world, we would give you all free tickets, but, you know, capitalism. Also, the RDS is very expensive to rent and audio and all that sort of thing. But anyway, we go into it from there. What have we got? We have Sinn Féin have come out with a new series of suggestions for the private rental market that they say will make a substantial difference to the quality of life for those in this country. We've gone through it. Uh, it's been heavily reported in the news, Michael. Um... There's a couple of interesting things in it that no one seems to have noticed. So I wonder if this is one of the traditional thing gets released with an accompanying press release and no one actually bothers to read it situations. Not that I would want to suggest that that would ever happen. We have another report of tourists being violently assaulted in Temple Bar. I wanted to talk on that, partially on the actual violence, but more on the problem the government now has with it because of uh, well, basically the media getting the scent of blood. And then finally, there was a piece in the journal this week, which was effectively people talking about how hard they are struggling with their mortgages. So I wanted to touch on that very briefly, not really to talk about that story at all, but more, Michael, to put forward an observation I have, which may be somewhat unpopular, and it is this. Irish people are the least financially literate people I've ever met on any country I've ever gone to. And I think that explains a lot of the trouble that people find themselves in. So maybe we should talk about the very basic things that you should do to, you know, not uh, find yourself in crippling debt and your life being ruined by it. Prevention, after all, Michael, is better than cure. Okay, speak always one. Any particular one you want to start with? I shall follow your lead as I always do. I was going to comment with a joke about that. <laughs> but Michael, that might lead listeners to doubt the, you know, uh, shall we say, loyalty of my secretary. And I couldn't have that. Okay, that's the last one. You have now exhausted <laughs> that. You get no more. It is finished and it is over. And I'm telling you now... One more, and I shall stick a pencil in you. So, do you mean a joke about it, or just pointing out that legally you are my secretary? That's counted. You are getting a pencil sharpened. The next time I see you, you should get a sharp pencil stuck in your thigh. Okay, so let's talk about the Sinn Féin thing to open. The big thing I think that's come out of it is... Well, st the strategic point that's come out is that Sinn Féin are saying that they want to shrink down the private rental sector because they say it's grown too quickly. 
the policy I think that's that's the particular policy point that's been focused on primarily is the promise that you'll get a free month of rent uh, from this. Now, actually, Dara O'Brien made similar promises um, you know, in, in the last while as well. So this seems to be becoming an increasingly popular thing. Weirdly enough, I haven't seen anyone mention when they say that you'll get a free month of rent, that when you actually look at the document, the document says every private renter will get a full month's rent back into their pro into their pockets. Yeah. But then says the tax relief would be equal to 8.3% of rent paid per tenancy with the credit divided as appropriate amongst the renters holding that tenancy. And then the relief would also be capped at 2,000 euro per year per tenancy and will be in place for three years. And it's kind of misleading, Michael, I think, to say you're all going to get a full month's rent back when it's immediately clear from this maths that that's not going to happen both because of the 2000 per year uh, per tenancy cap and dividing it amongst renters the, the maths just doesn't agree with that you can't limit this like this and then just say everyone is getting this well i suppose you can if no one is ever going to read your document and is just going to repeat what you tell them about your document indeed and i, I imagine that a press release that is issued in the first two weeks of August is... Well, I don't know. Maybe the press... The, the, the idea was that actually, since there is so little political news to do, that people would fall on it, hungrily analyse it, and then talk lots and lots about it, as indeed we are talking about it. So, But, uh, yeah, I think the details of these things tend to... They assume that these pettifogging details, indeed, will be glossed over. But it sounds like a good headline doesn't it but when you actually as you as you just did if you break it down into the the nitty gritty it starts to look an awful lot less impressive i mean the other thing that people have copped onto is that the document calls for a 3 year ban on rent increases that's a, a thing on its own rent caps generally don't really work i'm open to the argument that sometimes they can be used to to slow things down while you deal with structural problems that's not how they've been used in ireland it's not really how they've been used anywhere because you know the most permanent thing in existence is a temporary government program but people have noted that what i haven't seen any mention of it's possible i missed this is this they're calling for rent certainty after those uh, after the 3 year ban on rent increases uh, leaves and what they're calling for is for rents in the private rental sector to be index linked, which is to say that they will only be able to rise uh, a certain amount. Now, it doesn't say what they're index linked to. It just says the index should take account of key elements of the economy. Presumably, I mean, if it's an index linked, is normally you have to assume is going to be linked to the CPI, the Consumer Price Index, so which is essentially what the, the the inflation rate will be within the economy. And that's a fairly blunt instrument to use when you're talking about one specific good within the economy. I mean, the interesting thing here is that something like that happens in uh, certain American cities. And what it has done is it's basically removed all velocity from the market. Velocity is, is you know... Uh, kind of the throughput of the market. So how quickly can you get rental accommodation? How quickly can people move? Things of that nature. When you go into heavily, heavily rent controlled uh, places like Berlin or New York, people don't leave where they have because everything is rent controlled. And if you move somewhere else, well, that's a new tenancy and you know, God knows what it will cost you. So that's a big thing. I, I think you're right as to how they will probably do it, Michael. It's just kind of odd that they don't say that. They just say it'll be taking account of key elements of the economy, including wages and interest rates. That I don't know. There's also, they talk about how small landlords are leaving the, um, are leaving the market because there is a, large institutional investors are um, are advantaged by the tax system. But then they also say they're not going to do anything to uh, improve the tax status of small landlords. But what they are calling for is to massively increase taxes on institutional investors and ending all CGT exemptions and applying a 17% stamp duty and increasing dividend withholding tax to 33%. So they're going to make it more expensive for uh, private landlords, large institutional private landlords, 
to be involved in the market, which is going to be, God knows what the impact of that is actually going to be. Well, it's an, it's an interesting little it's a potentially window into the way that they think about the nature of economics. So th- their premise is that one of, one of the big reasons that the small private rental people are getting out of the market is because of the differential between the way they're treated in the tax system and the way the large institutional investors are treated. Now, I'm a little sceptical about the d- degree to which this is the primary reason why people are leaving the rental market. We have had fairly decent polling of private people in the private rental sector of why they're getting out. And I don't think that this is the number one reason. But the Sinn Féin answer is rather than say, okay, we're going to make it more tax advantageous for you to stay in the market, because if you're unhappy with the tax rate, we're going to make it better. They're saying, no, okay, you, you're unhappy with the, the differential between us and the big institution, between you and the big institutional investor. So what we're going to do is to make it worse for the big institutional investors, as if what's actually driving them out is a sense of kind of, Envy or disenchantment or, or lack. Of, so if as long as the other guys get hit as badly as me, I'm going to stay in. And I think that's psychologically a weird way of looking at the problem. Actually, there, there are moments of this where Sinn Féin actually do seem to have an idea of what's happening. So one of the points they make is that uh, they talk about regulations, uh, which landlords are unhappy to, with. They also talk about landlords being unhappy with the return on the rental income. And then... One of the points they make is that they say that in order not to drive up the price of rent, uh, when they give their rent credit, they're going to bring in the ban on rent increases, which is to say they are aware that pumping money into this could actually have a negative consequence, like pumping money into, into renters, which is an interesting moment of you know, accurate insight mm-hmm. from Sinn Féin, where they talk about regulations and we're talking about the primary reason small landlords and actually landlords of, of various sizes seem to be getting out. The number one reason that's been put to me when I've talked to landlords, particularly smaller landlords, is the regulations, uh, particularly the tenancy regulations and concerns that the market is, is incredibly overregulated. I've said before, I think pretty commonly that my view of the standard of regulations in relation to to rental tenancies is that if you are a good tenant or a good landlord, you are in prime place to be screwed with basically no protections. And if you're a bad tenant or a bad landlord, you can get away with a hell of a lot. I know myself, I wouldn't get involved in this market because of the tenancy regulations. It's just, it would be insane. Or just a massive amount of trouble, like... If you're if you're a small private uh, renter and you have because you inherited or because you bought for an investment or for whatever reason you have one or two houses that you're renting out, I know from my experience, but the experience of people in my immediate circle and connections, if you're lucky and you get a decent tenant you, and everything goes well, you, it can it it can be fine and it can work out well, and particularly. If you're in a situation where you're, as a lot of people were, you were underwater with the value of your house versus the size of the loan or the mortgage that you took out to buy it, and you needed income to keep you going, and you got a decent tenant and everything worked well, and you're now in a position where you're maybe out of negative equity, and you're, and that one, that is one of the reasons why people are leaving the market as well. I don't know how big it is. I don't think it's huge, but a number of people have said, okay, I'm out of negative equity, so I, I'm just I'm selling up because I I don't want to be in the business of doing this because it just takes too much time. But I know I'm, I'm thinking in my head now of two or three examples of people who just had a nightmare that trying to keep the thing rented was hard. Trying to get the rent was hard, and if you didn't get the rent, trying to get them out was hard. And then when you went in, the state of the property and the cost of of bringing it back up to a sufficient standard so you could rent it again. That I know people who, who had houses rented for more than 10 years and frankly, at the end of it, had probably lost money on the whole experience. So there are there are, there are issues. But Gary, oh, you, if we look at this from a kind of a first principles basis, is the problem in Ireland today a supply-side problem or a demand-side problem, or is it a bit of both? Now, it seems to me, on the face of it, 
And I could be completely off the ball wrong about this, but I don't think so. We have a fundamental problem of supply. We know that in the period after the crash, there was a significant period where the amount of building that happened in the in the country just collapsed to virtually nothing. And when demand returned and the economy recovered and people were moving back into the into the market, that the supply just simply wasn't there. And we haven't caught up and we are no near where near catching up. Right now, there are issues regarding how we can encourage supply. That is not something it seems to me that Sinn Féin are about. But if we take the core guiding light Correct me, please, if you think that I'm off base with what Sinn Féin are saying here. It seems to me that philosophically, ideologically, Sinn Féin want to see the size of the private rental sector shrink. And it's, by the way, not just Sinn Féin. In economics, like in everything else, there are moments and there are fashions, and there are quite a number of commentators out there who talk about this, who are saying, yeah, we, we actually, we have too large private rental sector, we need to shrink it. Well, it seems to me the, the, the only consequence come, that can come from that is that if we're not getting this good supplied by the private sector, it has to be provided for by the state, right? So we are being asked to believe the premise that the state will be capable and efficient in the delivery of the service of housing. Now, are we willing to take that bet? Are we willing to say, okay, this private rental thing is just not working out. Houses are too scarce. The rents are too high. The whole thing is a mess. We're going to hand over the supply of housing to the state because they will do it better, cheaper, more efficiently. They will build houses and they will deliver houses. I'm skeptical about except. The, about that premise. You don't think that the people who brought you the HSE should be also the people maintaining the housing system? You know what, Gary? That is precisely what I think we are being offered. You can talk about all the little little bits of push and pull legislation that they can do and the incentives here and the, the tax moves there and we can do all sorts of lovely intricate things and we can talk about the Vienna model till the cows come home. Because everybody wants to talk about the Vienna model. But ultimately, we're being offered is the HSE. Or even worse than the HSE, we're being offered the NHS. A friend of ours once had a, a notion that he was going to write a novel. One of a, a kind of a, what do they call those things where it's the opposite? A, a counterfactual. A counterfactual novel. Where rather than, as is the case, he, as he's English, where the state supplied healthcare and the private sector provided food, it would be the other way around. The supply of healthcare would be in the hands only of the private sector, but the supply of food would be in the hands of the state. So you get rid of, in this case, you get rid of Tesco and Aldi and Lidl and Supervalue and all of the others, all the others private supply, and it would all be done by the state. And I think if we think about the cost, the ease and the efficiency of the supply of food, which is pretty well the least regular. I mean, there are health regulations, safety regulations, that kind of thing. But as a market, it's probably the least regulated market that we have. And I would say it's about one of the most successful and most efficient markets that we have. But that's what we're being asked, is to think rather we're, rather than rely on the private sector, we're going to say, no, supply fundamental supply blum, the private sector cannot supply, so we're going to get the state in. <laughs> Sorry. When, when was the last time something happened where we got the government in to fix the problem and the government, in fact, fixed the problem? An evergreen question, I think, Michael. One of the things, the, the document notes that I, I, I quite enjoyed is they're talking about why people are in the wrong type of housing. And they're making the argument that people are spending uh, such a large percentage of their disposable income on uh, rent. And that that's terrible, Michael. Yes. And that's a common point I see raised. But I've never seen anyone in an Irish newspaper point out that 
a surefire way to increase the amount of disposable income that people have. Something that you can be sure will have an impact on everyone who falls within certain brackets that you know when you start is to lower the rate of tax. Lower the rate of tax, yeah. You could also look at the costs incurred by the state and by regulation in the construction of houses. Every time we talk about making houses cheaper, it's all about the people who are building the houses and what they're doing. And maybe we might talk about speeding up the planning process or something. Or we look with people hoarding land, Gary, because land is so expensive and people are hoarding it to make it more expensive. But it wouldn't be expensive if we didn't have a planning system which actually was like a genie in a bottle where if you have, if you have, if you have 10 acres which sits there and all this, the only thing you can do on it is grow grass to give cows. And then one day it's rezoned. Magically, the genie in the bottle called the state has rezoned your land and now it's suddenly worth all this money. I mean, we've talked about the government coming out and congratulating themselves for increasing the uh, standards that new bills are required yes. to have and talking about how, well, over the long term, this is going to save people money because the energy standards are so high without appearing to understand at all that as house prices increase, people find it harder and harder to buy houses and that many people will no longer be able to afford those houses because they are more expensive. And actually, Michael, to move on to the point I was making about finance, you were saying there about people selling up because they're no longer in negative equity. I would make a a point to you. Um, I would argue that it is likely that a lot of people who sold their homes on the understanding they were no longer in negative equity lost quite considerable sums of money. Well, here's a here's a question for you, Michael. How much does a three hundred and twenty thousand euro house cost? <laughs> You're a white man speaks with forked tongue. I refuse to answer. The average person, if they are taking out a mortgage, let's say a first time buyer, they will have ten percent uh, of a deposit, and they will take out ninety percent of the value. In a loan. Now, if you're not a first time buyer, you'll have to have more of a deposit. So let's say it's a 320,000 euro house, Michael. You're taking a loan for 30 years at, let's say, 4% interest. And so you're taking a 288,000. Assuming you don't overpay at any stage and that you just pay as per standard on a monthly um, bank schedule, it will actually cost you 495,000. Okay. So if you bought a house, went into negative equity, comes just out of negative equity after you've paid off the mortgage and you sell it, then you will have lost potentially hundreds of thousands of euro servicing the debt. Yes, of course. I I don't know how aware people are. I'm sure that most people know that if you buy a car or indeed any good and instead of paying for it up front in cash, on the day, bang, 15 grand, but you finance it, that the total cost is going to be greater. It's the same as buying it. I mean, the smallest thing that we do probably in this scale is when you, you buy a new, a new phone and you have a choice. You can either buy the phone or you can get the phone for free or for cheap by signing up to a, a contract. But of course, when you actually work out what the total cost is going to be over a period of time, when you pay for it, 50 quid a month, blah, 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 that the phone ends up being more expensive. I, I don't know. I imagine that most people are aware of that, but most people are also aware that they don't have the money to buy a house for 320,000 cash down. So the bank has to make money. Otherwise, why would they give you 320,000 quid to buy a house? I mean, I've seen little bits and pieces of research on this in Ireland, usually suggesting that Irish people just don't really have a good grasp of, of finance. But I will, you know, I'll be absolutely upfront in saying that my, my belief that Irish people just are not very financially literate is largely based on people I've met and talked to both in work and personally. I think you're right. People understand that if you take out a loan at a certain percentage, you're obviously going to pay back more than you paid in. But what I found when I'm talking to people is they don't seem to have any real understanding of how much they are paying back. Yeah, I, 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 I think that's probably true. But we, we all have different ideas about when we buy houses, why we buy houses and how we buy them. For, I remember it was always the case 
it was a, a when people talked about investing money or pensions or whatever. It used to be the case. I don't know if it still is, and I don't, maybe it's it is true in most places, but not in all places. That it was you're better off over a very long period of time if you could get a long lease. You're better off renting rather than buying a house through a mortgage. That it, that is if you used the money that you saved on your mortgage, the differential. If you use that money and you invested it, say uh, in a in a tracker fund on the stock market, that after a period of whatever forty years, the value of the money you had invested in the market would be greater than the value of your house. But people in Ireland are, I think, fairly reticent about investing in uh, in the stock market. They they we're not used to the idea of investing in equities or in funds. In the way, say that the people in the United States for are it's it's a normal thing for people to invest their pensions in in some kind of a fairly conservative basket of shares, and that's and of course that, all these things can go wrong, and you can also win. I mean, Gary, if you had a house in certain parts of Dublin, which once upon a time, like if you had a, a, a one of the workers' cottages from Jacobs that they had in Dawkey. And it was a small little worker's cottage and you stay there and you're ordinary working class people. But if you stayed there long enough, say you inherited it from your parents and maybe you left it to your kids, that house went from being a little worker's cottage to being a highly, highly desirable piece of property that somebody who was friendly with people and you too would want to pay over a million pounds for. And there was no way you're going to make a diff- that kind of differential by putting your money in the, mar- in the market. So, I mean, there is always going to be a certain, but yeah, but property feels safe. Houses feel safe. It's solid. It's there. You can point to it. You live in it and you use it. And you hope that when it comes to it, you'll downsize, If which is not something we, again, were used to the idea of buying and selling and buying and selling. We tend to think of ourselves as going into a house and staying there for the rest of our lives. Now, that's changing a bit. But for a long time, I think that's how people saw houses. There's certain knowledge that's required to do uh, investments, but there's also things like the um, deemed disposal regime, which puts a large barrier in the place of people just investing in, in, in certain things or in certain ways. And my thought here, Michael, is that a lot of actually the problems we've seen with property particularly are because of the way um, Ireland is set up in regards to investments. There's a lot of push towards the property sector even if you don't really want to be in it yes. because so much else is so poor. I mean, if you were in America, you would just invest in a Vanguard S&P 500 index fund or you know, a global fund or something like that, and you would just leave it there. That would be you done. Then they have you know a variety of incredibly tax-efficient ways to do things. The UK has similar things. We don't really have those. We don't really have tax-efficient accounts that can be used in those ways. We have certain things that people should pay more attention to than they do, like the um, like some of the pension options available to them. But there's a lot, I think, of the things that in other countries would be used by people once they hit a certain level of income, like a middle class kind of income, to generate future wealth that in Ireland just can't really be done. I, I accept that I think there are structural problems because of legislation. And you've talked before about the really bizarre way we have structured uh certain kinds of investments in equities which really are are punitive and discourage people from that but i think if we want to be reasonable about this we also have to remember that until not that long ago really within the space of a generation we're talking about people who the vast majority of people didn't have disposable income if they were saving they were saving in their post post office bank or their penny bank or in, in, or in their bank account, and maybe buying the odd share in the bank, which is what was seen as being safe as houses, got love us. But people didn't have large amounts of disposable income in, that they could use to save or to invest for the future. If they worked for certain kinds of companies, I mean, that was one of the great a, 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 attractions of working in the, in the state or the semi-state sector was the fact that you had a, a good pension. In the old days, one of the reasons why people went into the guards was because the guards had a good pension, civil service, teachers, banks, uh, some of the larger institutions, the larger private institutions, they offered 
good pensions. And that was one of the very strong reasons why people go into the, would seek a, a employment in, in, in those sectors. It's only really since the 90s that we've seen a generation coming up where they're earning the kinds of salaries that put them in a position to be able to think about making this kind of... So we are lagging behind, but that's also... I think that's a cultural problem. And I think that people will probably learn. I mean, if nothing else, because they'll have to, because we're, we, everybody keeps telling us that the, that the day is going to come where the state pension is just not going to cut it. There won't be enough money. There won't be enough of young people to pay for the old people, so on and so forth. Um, now, that will also require a slightly more tolerant and imaginative approach from our legislature that they'll have to allow us to create tax efficient opportunities for people to save for the future now how sanguine we are about that happening i don't know one thing i would note is that in ireland fund performances are in many cases abysmal and fees are in many cases very very high particularly if you go through banks in i mentioned a, a vanguard fund in America, Vanguard have exceptionally low fees. They follow the S&P 500, which is effectively the 500 largest companies on the American Stock Exchange. They have tr- historically given exceptionally good returns, and they are quite good. When I started looking at pension funds in Ireland recently, Michael, I was shocked at the what the fees and the returns. And between the two, the, the low returns and the high fees, a lot of pensions just aren't worth getting into. And I have a bit of a concern here because in Ireland, a lot of uh, pension advisors, a, a lot of people in, in, in that space are not paid by the people who go to them for advice. They are paid by the financial institutions, by the pension providers. I think that is a massive conflict of interest. And also, I have talked to multiple pension advisors who were paid through this system, who when I was talking to them, did not feel the need to inform me that this was how they were being paid. I have a feeling that people in general are not pointing out to those who come to them for advice that they may have interests that do not perfectly align with their clients. That's at least ethically dubious, Yeah, I mean, at, at best. If somebody is paying the piper and you're, you're advising somebody to, to go into a particular kind of financial instrument and you're being paid by the people who actually manage or provide that in- instrument, well, I think you have to tell people that. I wonder how much of the, the pension issue we're told there is. Um, you know, people with no private pensions, one thing, but people with undervalued private pensions is just due to people being given advice that they perhaps should not have listened to, but didn't realise they shouldn't have listened to it. And so being put into pensions that give returns that were never going to be sufficient to actually sustain them. Yeah, There's not much that can be done with that other than people actually looking around and picking the right place. An amazing amount of people I've talked to who have private pensions have no idea what the return of their private pension is. No, they just, they know they have a pension and that's it. Yeah, but the difference between having a pension that has a return of 4.5% and a pension that has a return of 8% is astronomical. So good to know where you stand on that. I don't know, I, it was really this, this story in the journal about people who were struggling with mortgage payments that brought this to mind because a lot of talk about different ways of paying down debt, Michael. And generally there's, there's two ways this is seen to be done. There's what's called the snowball method or there's what's called the avalanche method. If you examine the raw return on those, the avalanche method, which is basically where you pay off uh, whatever has the highest rate of interest first, and then you basically work your way down to uh, the lowest rate. The snowball method is you you find the smallest debt and you pay that off first. The avalanche method will always have better returns. The snowball method is psychologically easier for most people because you are paying off debts and you can see that you're clearing debt and there's visible movement forward. Yes. Um, so people find it easier on that basis. But there is a big debate amongst people about why you shouldn't pay down your mortgage because you'd be better, I mean, you shouldn't pay down your mortgage early because you'd be better off investing the money that you save by not paying it off early into pension funds, into things like that. And I've always thought that people really overlook the value of not having a mortgage, both psychologically and financially, because depending on the sector you're in, like if you're a public servant, your job is probably pretty secure. It doesn't really matter if you're an entrepreneur or you're in an area where your uh, employment is 
perhaps a bit more sporadic or you work hourly or something like that. I think it makes a lot of financial sense to actually focus on the mortgage because then you're, let's say, Michael, should rents go up 3%, you're suddenly not absolutely crippled by your mortgage, which has happened to a number of people I know because they bought very, very expensive properties. And there was a time where it felt like rates were going to be at this level forever. Inflation had ceased to be an issue. We were never going to have inflation again. We'd forgotten what it was. And rates were always going to be at this incredibly low level. And therefore, why would you, why would you worry about that? But then, whoa, who could have predicted that after squillions and squillions of euros and dollars being printed in quantitative easing, that inflation would one day return as it has and that the banks would have to start ratcheting up the rates and suddenly people are under a lot of pressure. The amount of people, uh, and research gives kind of different numbers for this and a lot of it is kind of from the UK because we do slightly less of this. The amount of people who cannot deal with a month's expenses if they had no income for that month is kind of shocking. You should have what would normally be called an emergency fund, which is capable of sustaining you ideally for three months if your income was just to stop. Most people don't have that, which is at which point you are, whether or not you realize it, effectively working paycheck to paycheck. And a lot of the people I know in that situation are earning massive amounts of money because the thing that gets you is lifestyle inflation. You buy the bigger Mm. house, you buy the newer car. And then when you lose your income, yes, on paper you were, you had a great income, but you just ate into it and now you're just bollocksed. Mm -hmm. And there is my financial advice to you. Do not increase your level of lifestyle beyond what is reasonable as you increase in wealth and build an emergency fund and then do whatever else you want from there. Pension is a good idea. And never back never back horses odds on. I did recently see a horse that was 66 to 1 win. So, you know, there's hope for everyone. <laughs> yeah. So on the, the final uh, thing, Michael, now that I've given what is, you know, clearly financial advice, although legally I'm pretty sure I have to say that was not financial advice. American tourists or tourists in, sorry, British, British tourists in this case. British this time. So I don't know, do we, do we, do we, do we care less about them because they're British or do we care more about them or do we care equally? I don't know. But yes, it's, it's, it feels like it's, and this is the problem really. It's not, I mean, it's obviously a problem for the poor individuals involved who seem to be savagely attacked. But this is now a theme. Every time something like this happens, it's going to be reported in a big way because it has now become a theme. I don't know, Gary. I genuinely don't know if if it was happening before, if actually every other weekend on a Saturday night, some American or French or English or Spanish tourist was getting the head bet off them. But, yeah, because it wasn't part of a narrative, a wider story, that it wasn't really being reported on. It was maybe on the, the, the local news in Dublin or... But, you know, it was a mugging in town. It's not exactly national news. Now it is national news. And every time it happens, it will be national news again. And for Helen, this is a big problem. Yes, this is this is really the primary problem they have. Media, sort of, this stuff happens all the time. Uh, here, everywhere. Uh, but media focus on particular stories, particularly thing. Particular things are made newsworthy. So in America, for instance, very heavy coverage of car chases and of shootings yes. because those things are sort of spectacular to watch. More the car chase than the shooting. But you get the point. They are things, there is a spectacle to them. Other stories become news just because they think there's public interest or it fits into what a topic of discussion that's happening. The topic of discussion here has now turned to assaults and violence in Dublin city centre, with a particular token a focus on foreigners. I would argue because the Irish government and media cares deeply about what foreigners think. They care what foreign countries think in a way that they often don't seem to about um, Irish people. I think they find it particularly embarrassing. And stuff like the American embassy coming out yes. and having to say, well, you know, there's a threat of violence. That doesn't, that just doesn't look good. But now you have a situation where the media is focusing on something that was happening constantly anyway, 
which means it's not going to stop. There's going to be a constant drumbeat of terrorist attacks, serious assaults, violence in the city centre. Where are the police? What is McEntee doing? And once it starts, kind of difficult to stop. And I think part of what is also going to drive this, Michael, is that McEntee appears to be bleeding. Like, McEntee looks weak. She is, I mean, we had the recent poll showing, what was it, 29% of people thought she was doing a good job. Her leadership campaign for Fine Gael seems to be in absolute tatters. And if the media thinks like they can scalp a minister, they'll do it just on that basis. Also, you know, and this might be a, a, a silly point, but I think it's unfortunate for them that it's happening in summer. In that it, it, it has become a it has become a story. It's now it's now a story in summer, and it, which is a time when there's just generally speaking less interesting political stuff happening. And on top of that, and this might seem bizarre, but I think that like for, from the point of view of public uh, opinion, it's it will have a little effect. Even hell of a lot of people who will, or in the months of July and August, will be going on their holidays, and they will go to places like France and Spain and Italy. And I can tell you, certainly in in Italy and in Switzerland, I know fairly well. And I, I south of France a little bit. One of the things that's become a constant lament in the in the context of this nar- narrative has been the fact that we don't see guards. Where are the guards? I don't see any guards. Why aren't there any guards? And then they go to these countries and they see police everywhere. Gary, I promise you, if you went for a walk for an hour around the middle of Milan, we'll say, right, you would see pretty well everywhere. You will see police. You'll see policy. You'll see carabinieri. You'll see traffic police. You'll see finance police. You'll see Vigili Urbani. You will struggle to go for more than three or four minutes without seeing a policeman on a street or in a police car passing you by. And people will notice that. And they'll go, my God, there's so many cops here. And then they come home and say, where are the guards? I don't see any guards. Where are the guards? So that mixture of a lack of news and people starting to really notice that every, why can, how come they have all, the, they have all these police? We don't have any. And the whole thing just becomes this constant grumbling snowball. And on top of it, Helen McEntee just doesn't look to be on top of it. I mean, we, we talked about it before, but that line she had, you know, we, you, you, you can never be really, you never be, what was it, a hundred percent safe in any city. You know, it's true. It's a perfectly true thing to say, but it's not what you want the Minister for Justice to say. I don't know, Gary, did you notice there was an article in, I think it was the Times, I can't remember. Oh, is this uh, Sheridan's piece? Yeah. Katie Sheridan? That the, the attacks on McEntee were manifestations of misogyny. I had been waiting, I promise you, I had been waiting for that article to be written. Well, I would make a... Um, a if we want to talk about the, the sex politics of this thing, Michael, I would start with this point. I don't think if Helen McEntee was a man, she would have been made a minister. Ah. And I think had she been made a minister after her performance, she likely wouldn't be one now. So if anything, I think McEntee's sex has been very helpful to her career. I think she's just been promoted beyond her competency. Whether or not she would be gone, I don't know. It seems to me that this government holds on to its ministers with a fair degree of tenacity. There used to be a saying, and probably not just here, that it was harder to get off the Wexford hurling team than to get on it. And I think it's a little bit like that with this government, that it's harder to get off the ca- out of the cabinet than to get into it. Uh, but uh, they, I think there may be a degree of truth to that, that there's a certain amount of preferential voting going on. One thing I, I will say in... Not to defend McEntee, but to contextualise this. She is right that once a place is a certain size, there will be some element of crime that is unavoidable. I would argue that we do everything we can to make sure it's as unavoidable as possible, and that perhaps bringing back judicial corporal punishment might be a solution. <laughs> I just feel if we were horsewhipping these people, yeah. they would be doing things less frequently. But there is a point to it. But the optics of the Minister for Justice coming out and saying that as a response to a, a serious assault was obviously a terrible idea. But what I would say here is this. You can see countries where because the media focuses on certain things, I'd say actually really in every country, but in relation to crime, it kind of depends where you are. You can have a, a point where the public end up feeling 
that something is happening far more commonly than it is or it happens to more people. So if you see the surveying on uh, people's feelings about whether or not they can be safe in certain places at night, and particularly with relation to women, women, when you uh, poll them as a group, feel much less safe in certain areas at night than men do, even though in most of those cases, men are far more likely to be assaulted. But there is a constant reporting of certain things against women, which leaves you with a particular feeling of what's likely to happen. Yes. The problem you have there is that because Dublin is so large, there will always be crimes like this to report, as I said, particularly with how lenient we are on them. You can end up in a situation where the media is rightly reporting things. They're not using falsehood at all. But the public ends up with a massively distorted view of the severity of this. So that would be the only kind of note of caution I would say here. There will always, the media has infinite amounts of stories here. It is silly season. There's very few other stories worth reporting at the minute because there's very little happening politically, um, or at least the doll is out. And so they're going to keep going on this. And it would just be something I would point out that just because you're hearing about it constantly doesn't mean you are any in any great uh, deal of danger personally because there's so many people that the percentile chance is still relatively small. Having said that, as someone who grew up in Dublin, there are certain areas of the city that have always been a bit dodgy and where you'd want to be careful. Absolutely. The fact that they've never been cleaned up is probably not a not a display of competency by the government anyway. Gary, but I... I, I... I know people have probably said this before, and I may have adverted to it before even in this podcast, and it doesn't really address the problem. But the centre of Dublin, once you crossed the bridge, once you left Stevens Green behind you and crossed the, the Liffey into O'Connell Street, I, it, this is a problem going back for years. I remember when I was in college, so we're talking the late 80s, there was, there was, a, there was a summer where there were marauding gangs going around beating up what were the version of emos of the time, to the extent that a friend of mine at the time was working on Sackville Place, which just around the, just off O'Connell Street. And one of the girls, because of the way she had her hair, the clothes she wore, was one of these potential targets. And she had to get driven from Sackville Place over to Borough Quay, where she took her bus, because she didn't feel safe walking that distance. And it's not a long distance from Sackville Place to Borough Quay. O'Connell Street was... and around the centre, there were, you saw people, I mean, it may be worse now, I don't honestly know, because I don't frequent the, city, the, the, the the street as much as I used to, but you used to see people shooting up, I mean, the street was littered with kids who were sniffing glue, huffing at the time, it was, that was a, a fact, that it was a constant battle with the fast food joints where people were shooting up in the toilets. She is also dealing with a legacy issue, uh, if we're going to be fair to her. There's a legacy issue about the nature of the way policing has been practiced or not been practiced in the city centre. Even 30 years ago, people were having the same kinds of conversations that we're having now about O'Connell Street, saying, isn't it incredible? It's this beautiful street. If you go to any similar street in a capital city in Europe, if you went down, okay, the Champs-Élysées maybe is pushing it a bit far, but still, it's O'Connell Street, so why not? But any of the great streets of the, the, the Unter van Linden or Los Ramblas or Corsica Desire is in Milan, which is a street I would have known well, which wasn't a very fancy street, but it was a safe street, a big, long shopping street, not very expensive or anything. Uh, but it was, you were safe to go up and down it. Now, after a certain time at night, on one end, Maybe we got a bit hairy. So she is dealing with a legacy issue. But the problem, I suppose, is that there isn't any... We don't have a sense that she's really dealing with it. We're hearing commentary, but we're not... We, there isn't a feeling. And you know what? The point you made about this, you know, the psychological disposition, which is generated by the narrative which people encounter in the media, means that very often it's not necessarily that you actually do anything, but that you are perceived to be doing something. Now, it would obviously be better if the government actually did something, but they don't even seem to be perceived to be doing something. I think you also have the problem of, you brought up the Italy, and I mean, I spent some time in Italy this year, and you do really notice in Italian cities the concentration of police officers, or what appear to be military yes. officers, but uniformed often armed, uh, and in very, very large numbers. And that, I think, is one of the problems here. The guards have been losing people quite heavily. They, they have... Morale seems to be in the toilet. 
it's becoming um, difficult to keep people in there. The Independent actually had a piece where they were looking at how many police officers are actually in Dublin per 100,000 people. And they said there's 255 Gardaí for every 100,000 people in Dublin. Mm-hmm. I pulled the figures for Italy. In Italy, it's about 400, and that's nationwide. And from what I've seen, Italian police officers tend to heavily congregate in um, in cities. So I'd expect in cities it's it's even higher. You know, I don't have the exact figures, but if you were to say it's... You know, 450, 500, I wouldn't be surprised. So you're talking about, even at 400, nearly twice to over twice the amount of police officers you would see in an Irish um, in an Irish city. And from what I've seen, I don't think the numbers tell the entire thing. Italian police officers seem to be on the beat very heavily. They seem to be all over the place. Whereas I was kind of surprised that the Irish the figures were that high for Dublin because... I've been in Dublin and there are just days upon days where you don't see any police. And I can't think of a a single Italian city I've been in where I did not see police during a day. And the thing about the Italian numbers is, I I may be wrong here, but the last time I looked, there are other categories of what we would consider to be police that actually aren't considered in those numbers. So the numbers may be a little bit higher again. But yeah, they're visible. But even on top of that, remember when we were waiting, we were going out to the conference in Ischia, we were having a coffee. And in front of us, you'd, you'd police to the left and you'd police over there. But right in front of us, you also had soldiers. Because we were in the port of Naples and it's a, therefore it's a, it's a, a place of sensitivity for security. And there were, there were armed soldiers lounging around and again in large numbers. So, and it does generate a sense of security when, 30, I mean, or it could make you feel rather insecure, depending on, I suppose, how you feel, but that 30, 40 yards away from you, there are four lads standing there with very large uh, automatic weapons. I don't know. I've never personally found the presence of armed security to be in any way anxiety-inducing, but then I don't I don't find guns anxiety-inducing. Well, may, yeah, but may, maybe, maybe you're smuggling large amounts of Cocaine for the for the Camara, <laughs> you might you might be more worried. I don't know, Michael. On, let me continue to perhaps make a controversial statement, which is this: criminals should be afraid of police. Yes, very, very afraid, and they should be afraid of judges and juries and all sorts of things. But I'm not sure if they are. No, so I think we will leave it at that. And we will be back uh, next week and hopefully every other week until the end of this year and into perpetuity until one of us dies. Hopefully you, Michael. God, Jesus. Two pencils in the thigh, deep. Anyway, have a good week. Enjoy. We will be back on Sunday. Bye-bye. All the best.